Back in 2005, one of the biggest stories in tech was a push by a group of MIT professors to build a $100 laptop and, and give them out to children in schools around the world. It was all over the news, and, and it even went viral online. And this means going viral by email, since Twitter had not even been invented yet. At the time, a typical laptop cost about $1,000 or more. So when the founder of the MIT Media Lab, Nicholas Necroponte, announced that he was going to make a nonprofit to build a $100 machine for kids, it was a feel-good story that was painted as beyond critique. The only criticism, and people really don't want to criticize this because it is a humanitarian effort, it is a nonprofit effort, and to criticize it is a little bit, is a little bit stupid, actually. Um, but the one, the one thing that people could criticize was, great idea, but these guys can't do it. That's Negroponte in a, in a TED Talk delivered in 2006. His nonprofit, called One Laptop Per Child, did go on to create millions of devices for a price closer to about $130. They were odd-looking green and white gadgets, and they were made to look unusual on purpose so people would be less likely to steal them or resell them. But things didn't go as flawlessly as their creators had promised. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. The story of how these laptops grew into a cultural phenomenon, what their educational impact was, and what happened to them after they faded from public view is the subject of a new book by Morgan Ames, Interim Associate Director of Research for UC Berkeley's Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. I recently connected to Ames to talk about the book and about her theory about the dangers of what she calls charismatic technology. Here are highlights from the conversation. I guess I wanted to, um, I'm very excited to talk about your book, The Charisma Machine. It, it's certainly a topic that really does get near and dear to, you know, we cover so much in, in as far as technology and education. And that was certainly one of the ideas, you know, education was certainly one of the big picture ideas that this device was was touted as, as a problem it was going to solve. But I guess... I guess take us back because some people, some of our listeners may not even really, may not be that aware of this, um, this $100 laptop, as it was often called, effort that came out of the Media Lab in what, 2005, over 10 years ago, when, when that $100 price point really sounded um, like an, a revolution in some way, I guess, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do find that at this point, this project has been around long enough that it is really historical in, a, in an in important way. Um, so yeah, 2005, um, Nicholas Neger Ponte started talking more publicly about this idea of the $100 laptop, as he called it then, um, as a way of getting um, computers into the hands of children all across the global south, or as he often said, the developing world. And um, this wasn't the first time he had worked on a project like this. This wasn't the first time the colleagues that joined him on this project had worked on this either, but it was certainly the most high profile. It was all over the news, 2005, 2006, into 2007. Um, there was a huge give one, give, get one campaign in Christmas 2007 and again in Christmas 2008 where people could buy one of these laptops for themselves and pay twice as much for it and one got sent overseas. Many of them ended up in Haiti. Um, so it was for a few years, it was really the kind of media darling of, of the tech world. <laughs> it was just all over the place. And then it 
kind of went dormant. Um, so one big question I had, I started following it when it was still very big, but, um, but I kept thinking, nobody is talking about what is happening, what happened with all these machines. And so that was one thing that I really wanted to follow up on. Um, and that was my motivation for continuing with this project as long as I have. So yeah, and, and basically millions, millions of these were created, right? So just shy of three million were in the end. Negroponte talked in early days. This is Nicholas Negroponte, who also co-founded the MIT Media Lab. He talked in the early days about making hundreds of millions of these machines. And I think he and many people on the project fully expected that they would get orders for hundreds of millions. Um, that never quite came to fruition, but three million or almost three million is still a lot of laptops out there. Um, most of them ended up in Latin America. There are two very big projects, one in Uruguay and one in Peru, which account for almost three quarters of those laptops out there in the world. But there are a number of other projects that are kind of small to medium size that are scattered all around. So you, um, and I think we'll come back to, to this particular case because it's just such an interesting story as you go through it in the book. But I, I'm, I'm, I think our, our listeners will also be really interested in your analysis and you you say it's an example, this one laptop per child, it was called the $100 laptop, was an example of charismatic technology. And and what what does that mean? What, what's the elevator sort of version of that of that explanation? <laughs> what What is charismatic technology? Sure, sure. Yeah, it took me a while to kind of come around to charisma, honestly. I, I, was, <laughs> I was just really fascinated, though, at how alluring the laptop itself seem to be in circles. You know, I mean, on one hand, Negroponte can be a very charismatic leader. He was the co-founder of Wired magazine, right? A, one of the early investors, I guess, maybe of, of Wired. Absolutely. And very and set the direction of Wired in its first number of years. Wired was a very tech utopian <laughs> publication back in the 90s, and he was certainly an influence there. Likewise, Media Lab was, was an incredibly kind of tech visionary, famously tech visionary kind of place. Um, with its own blind spots, I would argue, but um, but Negroponte's charisma was very important. But I found that um, aside from Negroponte, people mentioning the OLPC laptop or what came to be the, the OLPC laptop, the $100 laptop, um, they could just mention that and it would come into, it would stand in for all sort of, all sorts of big ideas in the world. And so I thought, you know, Negroponte sure has charisma, but this laptop seems to also have charisma in a way. And so I, you know, I started kind of thinking about it and fleshing out this idea. And it ended up being just kind of the central point around which a lot of my analysis ended up hanging and thinking beyond one laptop or child about other charismatic projects. I started seeing some kind of common threads of um, the kinds of stories these charismatic projects tell. And so what is the what is the very quick version of like what what makes up a charismatic technology? Yeah, so a charismatic technology generally promises to do something really transformative in the world. It promises to uh you know, to make us all better people, to um to completely transform our lives. Ironically though, it often does it makes those promises um, by referring to things that are, are already familiar with us. And this is something that um, 
charismatic leaders rely on too, right? They kind of echo our own values in some way. And so a charismatic technology similarly promises this quick fix transformation that it's very common in the tech world. Um, and in doing so, it, uh, it echoes some of our existing values, sometimes some problematic values. Yeah, what, I guess what are the, what's so wrong about that? There's a sense that um, you, you mentioned in the book that, that this is kind of a, um, a, 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 yeah, I'm looking for the word, sorry, a cautionary tale um, about kind of technology hype. So what are, the, what are some downsides to relying on a kind of charismatic technology? So charisma, um, on the one hand, can be this wonderful force that brings people together and gives them a shared purpose, but it can really also lead to a lot of blind spots. People get so caught up in the vision of this project, including people who work on it, right? This isn't just a matter of them hoodwinking everybody else. Like they many of the people on this project honestly believed this laptop was going to go out there. Um, kids were going to teach themselves to program with it and it was going to transform the world, right? Um, they get so caught up in that vision that they are, they miss important, uh, important markers that suggest that maybe that vision won't come true, that that vision is too utopian, that it's disconnected from reality. And I think that that's some of the danger of charisma is just that disconnect from reality. On one hand, I think that, you know, it's important to recognize that charisma is important, not just in the tech world, but more broadly in kind of bringing us together and giving people a sense of purpose. But um, but the disconnection can be very can be a big problem for a lot of these projects. Hmm. So it, it it basically kind of sets this narrative that both relies on our existing, like you said, it kind of relies on taps into existing kind of dreams and fantasies about things and then maybe doesn't acknowledge some of the challenges that that would come with um, with with dropping laptops in in <laughs> across the world without the the different infrastructure and and experience needed to to use them or whatever other issues that that you look at yeah yeah and in, and not only not acknowledges the challenges there it actively relies on glossing those challenges over, right? <laughs> like, you know, to be charismatic, they of, often these stories have to rely on on kind of easy, quick fix narratives with technology. All we need to do is, you know, I think at one point, Nicholas Negroponte literally said, drop tablets from helicopters, right? And the kids will teach themselves to, to read with them. So, um, so I think that that kind of quick fix uh, mentality uh, disruptive fixation, as a colleague of mine, Christo Sims, puts it, is an important part of that charisma. Do you, do you see a, a line, a kind of lineage between one laptop per child, this $100 laptop, and some of the Silicon Valley, you know, uh, hype and pitches that, that have come on since then, the kind of cultural Silicon Valley that really came on after that, or was maybe growing up at the same time? Absolutely. I, I wouldn't, I would certainly say um, maybe the uh, hype cycle in Silicon Valley became much more public afterwards. I would say, though, that it's existed for a very long time. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, just in ed tech, I look at a lot of the hype in the early 2010s around MOOCs as right, making these massive open online the, courses. Yeah, exact yeah. same promises that were made about one laptop per child. Um, 
the maker movement, um, in, again, in ed tech, makes many of the same kinds of promises. But more broadly, I look at this culture of, um, as the Media Lab used to put it, demo or die, right? Uh, but this is not just a Media Lab culture. This is a culture that drives um, the tech industry and especially venture capital more generally. Um, everything is about flashy demos, and there is a lot of value placed in flashy demos of charismatic technologies that in many cases are very disconnected from the lived experiences of people day to day. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I, I think we, we write about a lot of these companies and there's almost like this cliche from Shark Tank on TV to other things where you're going to make this incredibly short pitch, but you're framing a problem you're solving and how your small thing is going to change massive amounts of people and, and prospects, which it's going to change everything. <laughs> so, what happened? I mean, as you looked at this more than 10-year rollout of something that seemed like, like you said, it had all this backing, all this public momentum that is rare for any effort, you know, it's sort of the free advertising gotten from these kinds of things, these front page stories and stuff, you know, it's like, it's very rare. And so why wasn't it enough for this to, to grow more than, um, than it did? Yeah, well, I, there are a lot of pieces to this. So, um, you know, some pin one laptop per child's eventual failure on its um, technical shortcomings. And it was, in a lot of cases, a frustrating to use machine. These were slow machines. They were built with, in many cases, older technology, technology that was typical, maybe five or 10 or even longer uh, years before uh, 2005 or 2006 or seven when these were manufactured. And a lot of kids found them pretty frustrating to use. <laughs> um, they also broke more easily than, than one laptop or child had originally advertised and that many of the projects on the ground, um, the local projects expected and anticipated. Um, but I think even beyond the physical limitations, there was an impossibility in the promises made with a project like this. Um, and this is true for many of these kind of quote unquote moonshot projects, right? They promise so big that even if they had the perfect machine and they had no issues with it, that machine would not have been able to fulfill those promises. Um, and this sets up a catch 22 for a lot of these projects, right? So when they get funding, they promise big and then the funders come back later and say, oh, how'd it, how'd it go, right? <laughs> like we, we want success and they have to either say, well, actually, and, you know, portray things as they are with maybe some incremental changes and benefits, but certainly not the transformative change that they promised, or they have to maybe pretend that they've had some kind of transformative change. And, um, but either way, they are likely not to get another round of funding, right? So there's this catch-22 in projects like One Laptop or Child that didn't play out so much within OLPC as a, as a foundation based in Massachusetts, but, uh, but did play out on the ground with a lot of the local projects that you know, had to get ongoing support for maintenance, for training, for su successive rounds of kindergartners and first graders coming in. Um, all of these things cost a lot of money, and this was something that not all projects had been able to plan for. You know, often NGOs or government projects might 
plan out five or maybe even usually something like five years, right? Um, it's very hard to go beyond that. Certainly something good must have come of all the of all this. Do you do you have any sense of like what the best best thing that did come of of having all these these almost three million laptops um, put in places that didn't have this type of technology? Yeah, I, I can speak most concretely about Paraguay. So that's where I did my field work. Um, that's where I've spent the most time and I followed it most closely. And what I saw there was um, there was certainly a lot of excitement being part of this project with this kind of international exposure. A lot of people who were involved, the kids and the teachers and the parents were um, were kind of honored to be <laughs> to be recipients of these yeah, laptops. part of big... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of them even, you know, kind of understood the vision behind it to teach children to program and to really have them kind of join this, this, you know, international movement of, of open source hacker type people. Um, but um, for a lot of them, it was just more a kind of general kind of cosmopolitan dream of, look, now we can get on the internet, we can connect to the world that way. And so I think that um, the benefits that that enabled um, are not to be downplayed. I think that they might have come about in the next few years anyway, though. Um, In 2009, when in Paraguay, at least, when the one laptop per child laptops were given out, the first round of them, um, less than 10% of the Paraguayan population had computers. This was, there was very little kind of saturation of computers. Uh, most of the population did have TVs and radios, so it's not that they were really disconnected, but, um, and they, they would hear about the internet and computers via those sources, but they didn't have much direct experience. Um, so this laptop gave, especially the kids, a little bit more direct experience with, with that. Um, and along the way, some technical literacy, some more motivation to, um, to learn to read, um, especially Spanish, um, not so much Guarani. There's not a lot of Guarani content on the internet. That's the second official language of Paraguay. Um, but when I went back in 2013, I would say well over half, I don't have a great number, unfortunately, but well over half of the population had other kinds of computers. Um, and a lot of people had smartphones. Smartphones have gotten che- had gotten cheap enough that um, you know many of them were kind of crippled Android devices of various sorts where various features were not available, but, um, but they, it was still something that was a lot more prevalent than it was in 2009. So I feel like that shift may have happened eventually anyway, but having these OLPC XOs out there accelerated it, put it in the hands of children in particular, who may not have had it otherwise, and, um, and also gave them some tools to, if they wanted to, explore how machines worked, right? How programming languages worked, how the laptop itself worked. Now, what was, um, so those are, there's sort of like some, some upsides, but what are, what kind of unintended um, negative consequences do you think came out of this program? So one thing I was very critical of um, with the project was the way that quite a few advertisers hopped on and started making content specifically for the EXO. Quite a few kind of big companies. Nestle was one. Um, they contracted with a Uruguayan game company to make Nestle-themed um, mini-games that were specifically installable on the EXO. Um, Nickelodeon hosted a big 
competition for EXOs and had tons and tons of advertising. There are also local Paraguayan companies who, who sponsored um, various um, EXO events and you know, advertised a lot across them. And I, you know, this is something I'm very uncomfortable with in American schools too. I remember when I was in high school, Channel One was this big deal and we had to sit through these little newscasts and a lot of commercials, right? <laughs> and and right, as right. I kind of went into a communication degree in particular, I became pretty critical of that. And I think that on the one hand, you know, meeting children where they are and really taking children's culture and interests seriously is um, a great place to start for learning. But um, the role that big corporations have in that is something I am much less comfortable about. And that's one thing that, you know, one laptop per child ended up inadvertently giving these corporations an in into these children's lives in a way that was generally considered educational, even though it was in many cases straight up advertising when you actually looked at what they were doing. Hmm. Hmm. And I mean, I also saw that, you know, right now there's a whole bunch of, of teachers out there using Chromebooks and you see these maybe even in some universities too, which are these very low end devices. And I think I've seen some, maybe it was in your book that mentioned that there, you know, some claim that, that the, the one laptop per child, these $100 laptops kind of showed the way for, for a low, a low end device to be powerful as a school consumer device. Um, do you think there's some something to that theory, or um, Negro Ponte does love to claim that? Um, I it's hard to say because certainly low power devices existed before the XO. Um, you know, several of my friends had little clamshell um, proto Chromebooky kind of things. Clearly, they weren't running uh, Chrome OS, but. Um, but they did exist. That said, they were not popular and they were not seen as a great tool in education. Um, I do think, though, that there was also a lot of infrastructure that had been built up that enabled Chromebooks, right? So if we didn't have cloud computing, Chromebooks still wouldn't be very useful. Um, they really rely on having an internet connection and being able to store a lot of the things um, remotely. And um, this was something even OLPC didn't do very well. It did have an internet connection. There were there were school servers that, in theory, backed up um, individual children's laptops. Um, in Paraguay, at least, it really didn't work very well, and children would often fill up their paltry one gigabyte. It was only a one gigabyte hard drive on these. It was just ridiculously small, and as you can imagine, kids filled it up very quickly with media and. Um, and they were not making backups of a lot of the media content that kids had. They would make backups of, of the kind of official apps that they had installed before. So, um, so I think that's one difference. That said, I think that, you know, certainly the idea of using computers in education, the one-to-one -one model, it had been around for a while, but OLPC probably did help popularize it much more than it was before. For, for better or for worse. Yes. I mean, you can find people that, that think that's good or bad. Sure. Um, yeah. And what can you, I'm fascinated to, 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 to hear stories of what it was like to, on the ground. So you went to Paraguay. Can you just tell a surprising anecdote that you found of, 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 of kids interacting with these, what were they, green and white Little, little green and white laptops, like fun the... funky little laptops. Yeah, <laughs> got a couple uh, just in a bin right oh, over yeah. here. On the audio, we can't see it, <laughs> yes. but yeah, you have a prop there with you. Okay. Um, 
so <coughs> let's see. I, I feel like there are a few different possibilities to go here. One is um, what children tended to do in the schoolyards. So I there were a lot of tools on this laptop to enable children to both be on their own machines, but to be collaborating remotely. Even if they were just sitting across a classroom, right? They could both be independently drawing in the same, on the same, um, in the same drawing application, for example, and kind of collaborative, collaboratively creating something, but each from their own machine. There was all sorts of tools to enable this, right? And basically I never saw that happen. What would happen is that one kid would be doing something interesting and they would get a whole crowd of other kids behind them saying, oh, what is that? What is that? Oh, go over there, go over there. Um, so there was a lot of collaboration around these machines, but it was all just in person. None of it was mediated. And um, watching the dynamics of that and of kids asking, wait, where'd you get that? I want, I want that game too. Show me how to get it. And then saying, oh, we'll bring your laptop over. Okay, open it up and let's type in this thing. And then we'll start playing on your laptop and said that everyone's focus shifted over to the other laptop was um, in many ways kind of magical to watch. I, I loved watching those interactions. Um, that said, not not even the majority of kids were really interested in their laptops. A lot of them were like, nah, this is kind of a frustrating thing to use, or it doesn't quite work right, or it has something that's broken with it. And, um, and they just didn't use it. So watching the kind of fluid interactions around these laptops, but also kids being like, oh, you got yours out. I'm going to go play soccer um, was, was really kind of surprising and fun. Um, watching the classroom experience was much more frustrating to say the least. So these poor teachers who were tasked with um, using these exos in the classroom had to deal with uh, discharge batteries often. So they'd, they'd say, okay, please bring out your laptops, open them up. And about maybe about two thirds of the class had even brought them that day, uh, maybe even less. So they bring them out, and of those who actually had them, maybe a third were um, not charged. And each of the classrooms had one to two plugs, depending on the school, for plugging in the laptops. Uh, these were installed specifically for the program. These classrooms didn't really need plugs before that. They had lights, but they, you know, people, these are not high-tech kinds of classrooms, so, um, so there was no need for plugs for, for really anything before this. So, you know, you plug in those two machines, but maybe there were a few others that couldn't be plugged in and were just put away again. Um, and then the teacher said, okay, well, today we're going to be using, you know, say, tux paint. I, I saw a fair amount of use of that. It's this kind of simple drawing program. It had some fun little stamps that kids could use. Um, not the most kind of creative <laughs> piece of software, but it was a very kind of easy, low entry kind of piece of software. However, a lot of kids ended up uninstalling it because it was a pretty big file and they wanted more room for downloading media. So the teacher would find quickly that all but two kids had uninstalled the software and they'd have to re-download it and install it before they could go on with the with the lesson. So so then he, the teacher says, okay, go to this website, download this piece of software. Meanwhile, more machines are running out of power. The download maxes out the internet connection. 
you know, soon 45 minutes have passed and they haven't even started the lesson, right? And this is in a three and a half hour school day. So this was the kind of experience that I often saw in the classroom when teachers tried to use these in the classroom. And part of it was because students really had full control over these machines. They could take them home, they could install or uninstall whatever they wanted on them. And um, that combined with some of the technical limitations like the one gigabyte hard drive meant that, that yeah, teachers were often stymied in trying to have everyone have the same app at the same time <laughs> and fully charged. And a lot of them just gave up. And I, in a way, I don't blame them. It, it was a very excruciating thing to, to watch. Wow. I mean, it, it is interesting. I think overall, the, um, the message of Negroponte's pitch was that a, a low-end device can get a good enough solution to everybody. But it sounds like maybe they weren't good enough for doing much of, of the powerful kind of things that, that were pitched. Well, I, and I think it depends on your goals, too. I mean, if you had a low-end device that that you were guaranteed to have certain software on, for example, even if kids, you know, watched what they wanted and, and had some leverage to kind of download what they wanted. Um, if you were guaranteed certain software um, that you could use in the classroom, I think that helps. And if you live in a space with the infrastructure to be able to charge them, to be able to connect them to a reasonably fast internet connection, um, then I think that changes it too. One thing that is really important to understand in Paraguay and in a lot of the places that these laptops were meant to reach is that the infrastructure really was not built up um, before this project came in. Paraguay Educa had to install WiMAX towers in all of these schools. They insti installed Wi-Fi repeaters throughout the school. They installed the plugs, as I mentioned. They had a school server um, installed in the office of each of these schools. None of these schools had any of that. These schools don't have photocopiers, right? Like they are not even tech that we take for granted in many schools in the U S just didn't exist in these schools. Um, and so being able to get the infrastructure up from almost zero to enough for a low, a low performing device was a huge challenge for a lot of these projects. Um, in Peru, there was almost no kind of infrastructural buildup around around these laptops, and they just weren't used as a result. What would you, just in, in closing, what would you say is your biggest takeaway, or what's the lesson from this example of what you called charismatic technology, this this kind of whole rise and fall of this big idea? What what lesson can, can future especially maybe in the education realm, take away from it? Yeah, I think that in, in the ideal world, I would love for projects to be able to make realistic promises and still get funding, right? And get long-term funding. So, you know, if, if, if I were able to snap my fingers and change the world, change the ed tech world, especially, that would be something I would love. Given that that's probably not going to happen. I think one thing that I hope this book can accomplish is to make people more aware of the kinds of stories that get told about ed tech projects and about technology projects more generally, and how, how we get taken in by those stories because they resonate with who we see ourselves as and who we see, the group we see ourselves belonging to. Um, and when we are taken in, we can be blinded to what might actually be going on. 
I would love for people to say, well, we still need to tell the charismatic story, right? We still need to tell that that transformative story because probably that's how we're going to get funding. Um, but I'm going to kind of keep keep a nugget of skepticism in my own head and say, this is probably not what's going to work. I'm going to really keep my my eyes open and my heart humble and think through as much as I can and work with local people to really try to find a solution that works for them. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing um, your, your, your comments on the book and your, your thoughts. So thanks for joining us today. Yes, I hope this was, was helpful. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week we bring you interviews like this one. So please subscribe wherever you listen. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.